0: Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. We're going to dovetail off of the last episode where we were talking about pre-exposure prophylaxis for patients in the acute care setting. And today, we're going to talk about screening for HIV in the urgent care emergency department or other acute care setting. Dr. Amy Grover is here with us, and I'm going to have her introduce herself, but she occupies a unique position amongst my colleagues in that she works both in the section of emergency medicine and hospital medicine. And she has a particular interest in screening of adolescents for HIV. The discussion today is going to center around what does screening program look like? What is the testing actually testing for? What generation of tests are we on and how does it compare to other screening and testing that's out there? As well as some symptoms to be aware of looking for acute retroviral syndrome.
1: My name is Amy Grover, and I am a general pediatrician, and I work at Children's Hospital Colorado in the section of emergency medicine and hospital medicine, and I have a interest in HIV screening in the emergent setting.
0: And Amy gave a fantastic presentation to our section a couple months ago and I realized that I knew almost nothing from her entire presentation and then if I knew very little of it some of the audience probably did. And so we're going to talk about HIV screening and a little bit of an overview of the burden of HIV disease and then sort of what the screening tests look like and what a what a regimen of screening might be for places out there that don't have it. So, Amy, can you maybe give us an idea? Do we have any recent statistics on how often is HIV happening in our patient population and and who's getting it and what kind of risk factors are we we caring about?
1: So... The most recent data that we have from the CDC is from 2016. And when they look at adolescents, they're looking at age 13 to 19. The overall rate of HIV in adolescents in the United States was about 18 per 100,000. But there's really wide regional variability. So some states have one case per 100,000. And then on the other end, D.C. has 104 cases per 100,000.
0: I remember hearing at some point that one of the issues with adolescents with HIV is that they're rate of unknown diagnosis. So people that are HIV positive but aren't aware of it is, is relatively high in that age range. Is that true?
1: So the most recent data from the CDC from that same year is that adolescents have the highest rates of undiagnosed infections. And the most statistics put it at just over 50%. So, so half to more than half of adolescents who are living with HIV don't actually know that they carry this diagnosis.
0: So then, then why do we care about screening? Like we're, we're the ER if they're not there for an HIV related problem, why do I care?
1: So I think there are lots of reasons why you should care. So one of the things that we know is that anyone working in an emergency department knows that many teenagers use the emergency department as their medical home. And also that those teens that are using the emergency department for their primary source of care are also teens who are generally engaging in higher risk behaviors. We know that there is some data from the AAP that that PCPs are also not great at screening for HIV so we can't just say, oh, this is something that belongs to the PCPs. These patients are coming in to see us and so we have a certain responsibility to them. In terms of diagnosing HIV sooner rather than later, the landscape has really changed in terms of HIV therapy and and life expectancy so that early diagnosis we know reduces HIV-related morbidity and mortality and also progression to AIDS. There's also some... Some information that the majority of the new diagnoses of HIV in terms of transmission are coming from people who are unaware of their HIV status and are engaging in the high-risk behaviors that generally cause them to contract HIV in the first place. There's some adult literature that once an HIV diagnosis is made, the risk-taking behaviors, specifically sexual behaviors, um, goes down, which will decrease transmission. And then also recently what we found is that um reliably suppressed viral loads so patients who are taking antiretroviral therapy and have an undetectable viral load the the rates of transmission to other sexual partners or through drug abuse is essentially zero. Really? That's great. Yes. And I, that's I why we should find out if they have the diagnosis. I don't know what I,
0: that I would have predicted that. I, I guess I assume there would still be a relatively high rate even, but that's that's fantastic. What sorts of risk factors are we looking at as far as which of our patients are, are more likely to be infected and not know it or you know, where are most of the new diagnoses coming from?
1: So when the CDC gathers this data, which is really the the place that most of this data is coming from, they look at both adolescents, so age 13 to 19, and then young adults who are those 19 to 24-year-olds, and there's actually higher rates of, of HIV diagnosis in the 19 to 24-year-olds, although the thought is that potentially a lot of those diagnoses were actually acquired when they were in the adolescent period, and then they're just presenting to care when they are a little bit older. But in that age category of the 13 to 24-year-olds, the vast majority, when you look nationwide, about 80% is from male-to-male sexual contact. In females, heterosexual contact is the most common way that HIV is transmitted. And in this younger population, there's pretty low rates of infection from IV drug use on the order of a few percentage points.
0: So we'll get back to screening in just a second. Can you maybe review for me, what does acute retroviral syndrome look like? I don't know that I am seeing this very often, or maybe I am, and I'm just missing it. So I'm wondering if you can just give us a rundown.
1: Sure, so I think what's really hard about HIV is that so often when we see patients and we're not exactly sure what's going on, we say, oh, it was just a viral infection. Well, guess what? HIV is a viral infection and it looks very much like a viral infection. So acute retroviral syndrome represents an immune response to initial burst of viremia, just like in other viral infections. It usually will occur about two to four weeks after the infection, but with some pretty wide variability. And the peak symptoms are going to be just before peak viremia, which in most patients is going to be about two weeks after exposure. Part of what makes acute retroviral syndrome so difficult is that sometimes the symptoms are so mild that they go completely unnoticed. And if you look at published data, anywhere from 10 to 60%, depending on the case series of patients, have what's called asymptomatic initial infections. When patients are symptomatic, the symptoms are very nonspecific. Fever, fatigue, and myalgias are the most common symptoms that are seen, just like with any viral infection. Yeah, that's not super helpful. <laughs> that's not super helpful. In terms of things that are potentially a little bit more associated with acute retroviral syndrome, one thing is that it tends to last a little bit longer than your average viral infection, so duration of about 7 to 10 days. But like all viral infections, it's going to burn itself out even without treatment and go into more of a latent phase, which results in presentation to care. Other things that are often seen, diarrhea as well as nausea, vomiting, and weight loss. Acute retroviral syndrome can be associated with a rash that's a fairly nonspecific rash. It's like a 5 to 10 millimeter round or oval maculopapular rash that tends to affect the face, neck, and upper thorax and usually develops about two to three days after fever onset. One interesting point is that acute retroviral syndrome rash can involve the palms and soles. So it's something that we should potentially add to our mental differential of patients presenting with a palm and sole rash.
0: So, So that differential for kids now is basically just hand, foot, and Mouth, syphilis HIV. Is that it? <laughs> no. you didn't ask me that beforehand <laughs> those are the
1: things that I think of yeah, off the top that's, of my head I,
0: I, that's, that's usually it like every time I see a kid with palm rash it's almost always hand foot mouth it is almost then...
1: always hand foot and mouth although I would say hand foot and mouth is fairly rare in the patient yeah. population that we're considering for yeah. HIV
0: when the parents ask me what else it could be internally I'm like oh well, uh, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell you that
1: true very true
0: just one editorial note because we forgot to bring it up when we were joking there Another thing that causes rash on the palms and soles is Kawasaki disease, which often is at the forefront of your mind anyway for any pediatric patient with fever. But I think we sometimes don't think about it as they get a little bit older, and it's still possible.
1: Lymphadenopathy is another prominent feature Mm -hmm. that tends to be kind of the upper half of the body, so cervical, axillary, and occipital. One of the things that's hardest to differentiate in this patient population is acute retroviral syndrome versus EBV or mono infection. You can see a positive monospot and atypical lymphocytes. In acute retroviral syndrome. So that's really scary information. And I think lots of times we see the positive monospot in the, in the atypical lymphocytes and you think, boom, I'm done. I've made that diagnosis. I, but am,
0: I don't think I realized that. I just assumed that both of those things really went along with mono and, and there was not much else to worry about.
1: Yep. So the monospot is not a terribly specific test. In terms of things that can help you differentiate mono from HIV, HIV or acute retroviral syndrome tends to have a more abrupt onset. Patients often will have diarrhea and rash. And then in contrast to the terrible exudative pharyngitis that you see with mono, HIV or acute retroviral syndrome often just has some posterior or pharyngeal mild erythema or edema. Another thing that can be suggestive of acute retroviral syndrome are painful mucocutaneous ulcers, which are common finding for viral syndromes in children, but are less common in adolescents and the patients in this that, that we're thinking about HIV or acute retroviral syndrome for. In terms of symptoms that have been published to have a higher likelihood ratio for HIV infection when you're looking at it, this is in adult patients, but, um, Genital ulcers are published frequently, but that is mostly based on these pooled studies where a large percentage of them are coming from Africa. Yeah. Um genital ulcers are a very rare presenting. Um, complaint in the United States. But but things that have been found to have a higher likelihood ratio are weight loss, vomiting, and swollen lymph nodes as symptoms and lymphadenopathy as a sign.
0: I'm going to lead back into screening with this question. If you think you have a patient that has acute retroviral syndrome, wh- what does the testing for that look like? I, I feel like I remember in my brain that there's some amount of latent period or where you'll get false negatives on the test. And so if somebody seems to have active symptoms... Is the testing useful at that point?
1: Right. So that's a really important question. And HIV testing for acute retroviral syndrome is very different than HIV screening of an asymptomatic patient. So viremia becomes HIV viremia becomes detectable with a PCR about 10 days after the initial infection, although the published reference ranges are somewhere between 10 to 33 days. And the first 10 days after infection are referred to as an eclipse period because there's no reliable way to detect HIV at that stage. But if you are concerned about acute retroviral syndrome, the test that you should send is an HIV RNA PCR, and you should also be discussing it with your infectious disease colleagues. The tests that we use for screening are a little bit less sensitive and specific, and there's a little bit more of a lag time. So fourth generation HIV tests can detect HIV infection as early as 15 days, but sometimes more in the in the one month range.
0: Okay. And those fourth generation tests that we're talking about, what are they actually testing for?
1: The fourth generation test has three steps to it. So the first step is a screening immunoassay that will turn positive if either the HIV-1 P24 antigen or an HIV antigen
0: is positive. One clarification here, because I did not catch it when we were recording, what that statement should say is that the first step will turn positive if either the P24 antigen or an HIV antibody is positive. We said antigen twice there.
1: So if any of those are positive, that screening step is positive, and then if that is positive, then the then the lab reflexes that to a HIV one and two antibody immunoassay. So if both of those, the first step and the second step are both positive, then that patient is considered to have HIV and the testing is done. If the first step is positive and the antibody test is negative, that's considered an indeterminate result. And then that will go on to an HIV, RNA, PCR to help you differentiate between very early infection where the virus is detectable but don't, don't have a detectable antibody response yet versus a false positive initial screen. And my understanding is that false positive initial screens are incredibly
0: rare. And now these these fourth-generation tests are not the equivalent of a rapid point-of-care test. Do those exist for HIV?
1: So rapid point-of-care tests do exist for HIV. Most rapid screening tests are antibody-based and don't and detect infection until antibody response appears again three weeks to three months. And most rapid tests are less sensitive and specific overall than the fourth-generation test is.
0: All right. So we've gone over the testing. And I think the, the big reason I wanted to chat with you today is what does a screening Program look like? What are the steps? Where do they occur? Do you have any thoughts on who is responsible for following these these results? And then, what kind of barriers are we likely to to run into?
1: So, I think those are all really great questions. the The way that I actually got interested in this work was I was preparing a lecture on sexually transmitted infections for our acute care education day, and I was including HIV as a sexually transmitted infection, and I came across the fact that the CDC Actually, currently recommends that all patients aged 13 to 64 presenting to any healthcare facility for any concern should be screened for HIV if they have not been screened within the last year. Wow. The recommendations are. Well, let me clarify, at least once per lifetime, yearly with ongoing risk factors. And then for very high-risk patients, like patients who are known to be males who are sexually active with other males, it can be even as frequent as every three to six months. And so that got me thinking about the fact that I had almost never sent an HIV test from the emergency department before. And, and what did I need to do to make that be a possibility and bring our, our institution more in line with what the CDC screening guidelines are? So in the past, HIV screening recommendations were really more based on risk-based assessments, which assume that you're actually asking patients all of these very personal questions, which we there are many studies suggesting that we are not as good at that as we should be, and then also that people are answering them truthfully. And if you look at, there's been recent media coverage, not from a professional standpoint, but just in my web browsers about how rates of HIV screening are going down in adolescents and young adults. And and the reason that is thought is because teens just don't perceive themselves to be at risk for HIV. And so risk-based assessments sometimes are going to falsely mislead you. For what it's worth, just to balance out the CDC screen li- screening guidelines a little bit, the AAP has also weighed in on this, um, and their current recommendations are for all sexually active adolescents they should be screened for all adolescents at least once by age sixteen to eighteen in high prevalence communities. So their gu- their recommendations are a little a little less universal. I think there are a lot of barriers to doing this in the emergency department setting. This has also been published on. And I think these things all make I think any of us who works in an emergency department setting could come up with these just off the top of our heads. So a sense that HIV is not a problem for our patients, being unfamiliar with actually what the screening guidelines are, as I was until I sat down to write this lecture and kind of learned more about it, concerns about cost, concerns about this diagnosis really falling outside of the routine ED scope of practice. Obviously, in the ED, we're always really worried about timing, and this is time-consuming. It's a somewhat uncomfortable diagnosis, and it's a conversation that requires you to ask a lot of uncomfortable questions. Concerns about privacy, and then concerns about follow up and delayed results. And how are you going to have these patients? And that, that I think is what I was taught as a resident was just, we don't have any way of following these yeah, tests who owns up that test? who owns that test. And so, and so we, it's just not appropriate to send it from the ED is, is kind of what, what I learned.
0: I'm going to assume that you, you disagree with that assessment right now.
1: I do. <laughs> I think it's a little bit tricky you need to have some process in place in order to follow up these tests. So this is where different institutions have made different decisions in terms of rapid versus the fourth generation screening test is not an immediately available test. So in our institution, the initial screening step from our main lab takes an hour, the confirmatory step takes another two to three hours. So that's not ridiculous for a patient that's in that facility. But for those of us who work at the satellite facilities, and that lab test has to be couriered over, or for For patients with an indeterminate initial result who then need to go on to PCR-based testing, which can take a day to a few days, these tests are kind of hanging out out there. And I think that's part of the reason why a lot of institutions that have, have instituted universal screening are using the rapid screening tests.
0: Yeah, so that they're they're back right away. And I I, yeah. I used to work at a facility that it was in D.C., so our prevalence is far higher. That used the cheek swab one, right? And it was an opt out. Basically, every teenage patient got it, regardless of risk factors, unless they said no. But that's a that's a very different burden of disease. Um, is there any data out there on what this patient population, so our teenagers, actually think about screening? Is this something that is going to drive them away from healthcare? You know, are they offended when you ask about it?
1: So most of this data comes from urban environments where the HIV prevalence is fairly high, and so you have to consider that patient population when you're considering these results. But in those studies, very high rates of screening acceptance, like on the order of 70 to 80 percent, generally patients did not seem to, in those studies, have a significant concern about it. And I would say anecdotally, since I've started to really try and do more of this myself, teens that I would consider based on having taken a HEADS exam to be not zero. So any patient who has ever had unprotected sex is technically at risk for HIV, but patients that I would consider to be fairly low risk actually say to me when I say, are you interested in an HIV test? They're like, yes, that would make me feel so much better. It's been interesting to me how how accepting people have been of Screening, and if they and if they don't want screening, they just say no. I'm not interested, and and we move on.
0: I, this is my general feeling about teenagers. I mean, they don't they don't have the best executive functioning. They don't always have the greatest risk assessment. But I, I do find that when you are open and, and upfront with them, and you don't act like this subject is weird or taboo, they tend to talk f- relatively openly with you about mm-hmm. it especially if you get them away from their parents. They're generally very accepting. I've not had anybody like be like I'm so offended I you can't be my doctor anymore, you know. So so that that discomfort that's that's internal to us.
1: Yes, and I think that is that's really important. Teens actually say that they would be more likely to accept a test if it was directly offered to them. They're much less likely to ask for testing. So that's an important thing. And then the other thing when in speaking with my colleagues who follow up the teens who are positive, one of the things that they that they have expressed to me is just that that the teens really do sense the provider's level of comfort versus discomfort with this topic and just gen- sensitive health topics in general. And I think this is a really important part of our job. And the only way to get good at it is to ask these questions yeah. over and over and over again until it doesn't make your heart rate go up. And, and then when you're calm, then they can be calm too. Yeah,
0: you just Kind of got to suck it up and ask them. Totally. Um, I think one of the other, at least perceived barriers, is these patients are legally a minor. They may or may not be there with a caregiver. They may or may not be on their parents' insurance. And so what do you need for consent? And do you need consent from both the patient and the parent? Is it verbal? Is it written? And then what does this look like from a privacy standpoint?
1: So I think for me, in in my context, this is the part that's hardest for me to, to figure out. So in talking to people in other environments, practicing in different cities, they have said things like, I have never had a parent... Get upset with me when I asked asked them to leave so I could talk to their teen. I I have not encountered intense concerns about confidentiality. Where in the setting in which I work, which is a suburban satellite facility, um, that that's foremost in a lot of people's minds. So in terms of consent, the consent for the test, I I remember the days when when you needed a written consent form to send an HIV test, but that is not true anymore. You only need verbal consent. However, the recommendations are that you are providing the teenager with some kind of pre- and post-test counseling regarding what you're testing for, why you're testing for it, how are you going to communicate the results to them, what does a positive result result mean. So just kind of like any other test that we do, informed consent and that can be verbal or written or both but it but verbal is completely fine their consent that they sign for treatment out in the in the registration room before they even get seen covers hiv testing The recommendations from the CDC actually are for um, opt-out screening as opposed to opt-in screening. So opt-in screening means that you have to kind of choose to be screened rather than the language of opt-out screening is, I am going to screen you for HIV unless you decline. Research would show that patients are more likely to be screened with a more of an opt-out approach as opposed to an opt-in. So an opt-in question would be, do you want to be screened for HIV? In terms of of showing up on insurance. So all insurances do cover HIV screening. It will show up if you have an insurance plan that gives detailed itemized bills. You get those letters to your house that say this is not a bill and it summarizes your care. Pregnancy tests and gonorrhea and chlamydia tests already show up on those itemized bills. And this is is definitely a confidentiality issue. And so it's something that I've started addressing with teenagers prior to screening them. When you're adopting more of a universal screening approach, this is a little bit easier than when the parent complains, then you can just say this is this is just our universal practice. This is what the CDC recommends rather than I chose to screen your teen based on secret things that they told me that I can't tell you.
0: And that's going to end the discussion for this episode. The discussion surrounding privacy and confidentiality in terms of adolescence when you're dealing with sexual or reproductive health or anything related to that could go on much longer. I'm going to avoid diving deeper into that before we wrap up the program because there are extensive discussions on it in the immediate prior episode to this one where I discuss HIV PrEP as well as the two-part human trafficking episode. Take a look back in the feed and listen to those to get a little bit more into the subject. You need to be aware of what your state regulations are as well as your institutional policies regarding what information can, cannot, or is required to be divulged to parents and caregivers and how to navigate that. Hopefully you found that helpful. I do want to reiterate that this discussion was meant as a general overview of what an HIV screening program could look like and what some of the particulars to consider are. The local and state regulations on this are numerous and changing. And I can't tell you exactly what each individual patient is going to be dealing with as far as their confidentiality, what their insurance bill is going to show, or how their parents are going to react. At least in my practice, I do think this is an issue that we aren't thinking about enough. And the fact that at best guess, 50% of adolescent patients with HIV don't know they have HIV should really make us consider expanding what screening we do significantly. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd. You can email me at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or you can leave a comment on the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to your favorite podcasting platform and leave us a review. It really does help other people find this. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine.